Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Traxler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity. I'm Carolyn Ford, joined by Eric Traxler. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Carolyn Ford. Welcome listeners, who I would like to ask a favor of. Please share episodes that you like of To The Point with your friends and leave us a review on your podcast platform. Carolyn, what do they do with episodes they don't like? I don't want to hear about that. Good answer. So what are we doing today? (laughs) Who are we talking to? We are joined by retired FBI supervisory special agent and digital laboratory director, Jason G. Weiss, who is now counsel in the Los Angeles office of the law firm Fagri, Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath, and he Perfect. is cybersecurity and incident response. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Carolyn and Eric. Thank you so much for the opportunity to join you today. Sure. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. And I, I'd really like to kick it off with just telling us a little bit about what you did um, as a special agent for the FBI. Uh, I spent 22 years in the FBI in the San Diego in the Los Angeles office, where I basically specialized in computer forensics and cybersecurity. Uh, I spent my first year, as they say, out on the streets handling bank robberies, bank fraud, violent crime. But because I had a reasonably decent background in computers when I'd come into the FBI, they moved me over to the, the cyber crime squad in San Diego, where I got involved in what's, what's called computer forensics. And I then spent the next 21 years and two months basically working in terms of helping agents handle cybersecurity cases. I did forensics on probably close to 1,000 cases in my 22 years in the FBI. I was also uh, blessed to have been promoted to supervisor of the computer forensics and cyber squad, where I also helped build two FBI, what are called regional computer forensics laboratories. I uh, started the San Diego and the Los Angeles labs and the Los Angeles labs in Orange County. And I was the actual laboratory director of the Orange County Regional Computer Forensics Lab for seven years. And uh, I also helped build a cyber task force called the Neighborhood Watch, where we basically brought public and private entities together to share information on threat and uh, other types of cyber maladies and basically work together to defeat cybercrime. Is Neighborhood wow. Watch that same program that, like, it's still around, right? Yes, it, it, it is. It is. It was a pioneered and, and started in the Los Angeles field office, but it's spreading to other offices around the FBI. And it's a pretty fantastic partnership between the FBI and private sector entities. Even what we do is we take these different entities and we put them in what are called neighborhoods. So, for example, we have the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, who, although they're business competitors, when it comes to computer security, we're all on the same side. So we share information. The FBI shares, they share, and we use that as a way to basically keep out and prevent cyber attacks against the various neighborhoods. Is, is that related? Carolyn, check me here. Maybe I'm dating myself and maybe I'm wrong, but to McGruff, the tr- crime dog? Uh, that's what I'm thinking in the neighborhood too. Watch? Yeah. This is a different yeah. neighborhood watch. This is not okay. staring at your front window. This is a, a different kind of neighborhood watch. It's, it's the neighborhood watch of the 21st century. But, but are, are we overlaying? So so we, we still have people who are sitting on the porch and see things and then they call up. 
Are we overlaying the the cyber side to it? No, at the same no, time, no. or they're they're distinct. They're distinct groups. They're distinct groups. The neighborhood watches when okay. you're dealing with that deals more with the local police departments and, and your neighborhood security and people neighbors looking out for one another. We call this the cyberhood watch. We call the different groups neighbor neighborhoods. Like we have ports, we have universities, we have banking institutions, we have entertainment industries. These okay. are groups that typically compete against one another in a marketplace. But from a cybersecurity standpoint, we put that aside and we work together. And Almost we, like the uh, the ISACs. Yes. Fantastic analogy. Yes. Gotcha. Fantastic analogy. But you don't have a crime dog. No, we do not have a crime dog. <laughs> no. Everybody's got to have a, you know, a motto and a- and a, We have a logo and of... you don't exist in the FBI unless you have a logo and you have to have a- What's, okay. what's your logo? Oh, we have, well, we have a cyber, cybersecurity, cyberhood watch logo. So once you have the logo, you're real. Okay. I know you're okay. retired, but yeah. I'd go with a mascot. Tell, tell, the, tell the boys and girls back there to get a mascot. We do now have two computer sniffing dogs in the FBI, which is a, a great step forward for us. We have dogs that actually go in and search out. We have one of them in Orange County and we have one of them back east. And these dogs as close to an FBI mascot. We have bomb sniffing dogs and we have computer sniffing right. dogs. So what the are they FBI sniffing? is uh, there are chemicals on computer parts that these dogs are trained to find, and they are absolutely amazing at how effective they are from people trying to hide computer evidence from the FBI when we used to go on search warrants. They can bury it in the ground. They can hide it in the attic, but you can't. You can fool a person, but you can't fool a dog. No way. Carolyn, that's it awesome. Amazing. It is amazing. We've pulled some crazy things out on this podcast, but I've never right? uh, never expected that one. A computer sniffing no. dog. The dog in Orange County is named Ginger. She's a sweetheart, but... She's never missed. We've had people bury stuff in the walls, hide stuff in electrical sockets, buried in the ground, and Ginger's found it all. Wow. Oh, who thought, and who thought to do that? That's brilliant. Well, then I'll take the credit for it, although it wasn't okay. me. Okay. <laughs> nice, nice. So now you, you're you an attorney. How, I am. I mean, how did that happen from FBI special agent to attorney? Were you an attorney when you were with the FBI? Uh, actually, I spent my first six years of working life as an attorney before I went into the FBI. Uh, oh. During law school, I did an, the FBI Honors Internship Program, where I spent some time working at FBI headquarters, and I actually wrote the brief on how to fire alcoholic agents under the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. That was my big thing. Uh, I was a lawyer for six years, was burning out on it, so I put my application back into the FBI. I was fortunate enough to be accepted. I went into the FBI when I was about 30. Spent 22 years there. And when I got out, my father reminded me how much he spent on my law education and really wanted me to go back to trying to be a lawyer again. So uh, I specialize now in cybersecurity, incident response, and forensics. And uh, it's I'm very fortunate because one of the skill sets I have, I think, that probably separate me from a lot of other cybersecurity attorneys is I spent 22 years in law enforcement. I've, I've spent time in cybersecurity. I've spent time in forensics. I like to say I speak all the different languages, so I'm fairly good at translating the, the languages back and forth between clients and and cyber folks and forensics folks, and I can kind of talk to all of them, and that's kind of my you know my major skill set, I would say. Yeah, and you got both you got both sides of the coin essentially. So yeah, Jason, you've spoken and you've written about disruptionware. Yes, we haven't we we we've, we've touched on it but we haven't really spent a lot of time on disruptionware. I mean, ransomware, yes, which is a component, but would you explain what that is to our listeners and, and why they should care? 
Yeah, ransomware, as much as I love to discuss it, I was not the the brainchild behind it. It was discovered and coined by a group called ICIT, ICIT, who were the ones that really brought ransomware to the forefront. But I've really done a lot of work on it from a legal standpoint and a legal analysis standpoint, talking about how it affects people in a real-world environment. Disruptionware is, I think, the new cybercrime of the 21st century. It basically takes ransomware... Ransomware is a tool in the disruptionware toolkit, as are things called wipers and blockers and exfiltration tools. There's many different types of disruptionware. And disruptionware is designed not just to collect ransom. Unfortunately, it's also designed to destroy. Most businesses have two types of networks, and they don't, some don't even realize it. They have the traditional IT or information technology network, which is what we're all used to, where we store our email, we store our data files. These are networks that typically get attacked in a, in a cyber attack. But what disruptionware also goes after is what's called an operational technology network or an OT network. And that's the network that runs infrastructure for many businesses, especially schools, government, and, and most importantly, hospitals in the healthcare industry, and who are three of the biggest uh, victims of the disruptionware world. Disruptionware is turning into a multi-billion dollar industry because Companies are using disruptionware tools to threaten companies, not just with theft of data or encryption of data, but to literally physically shutting down, shutting down businesses, sometimes permanently. Sometimes these attacks are so destructive. I mean, Stuxnet, if you remember Stuxnet, you know, with the government oh, yeah. attack, alleged government yeah. attack on Iran, uh, that was a disruptionware attack because that didn't right. attack just the, uh, although at the time we didn't have that term. But that's really what Stuxnet was because it attacked the operational technology networks of, of, of a foreign nation state. And that is what disruptionware does, which is what makes disruptionware so dangerous. Unfortunately, ransomware is a big moneymaker and it's extremely successful for cyber threat actors. But disruptionware is killing people. I mean, I could think of two well, or three. What do you mean by that? I could think of two or three instances in the last six months where hospitals have been shut down by disruptionware attacks which are ransomware attacks, but they're attacking the operational technology networks within the hospitals, and they're preventing the hospitals from using their equipment. There was one case out of Germany, I actually wrote about that, where uh, a patient died on the operating table because they got hit by a disruptionware attack in the middle of surgery. They tried to move the patient to a different hospital, which was 20 minutes away, but the patient wasn't able to survive the move because of the timing. Is that the attacker's goal? Is it, I mean, it sounds like a terrorist attack. You know, in that particular case, the, ter- the, the cyber threat actor swears up and down they didn't mean to shut down the hospital. They were going after the university. But when they attacked the university, they also hit the hospital. It, it, it could have been inadvertent. I don't know. But so they found them, though. I, I don't know. That's a German law enforcement question as, as okay. to whether that those folks were actually captured or not, because... Capturing those people are very hard because threat actors yeah. at that level of sophistication are very good at attribution hiding is tough. Attribution, attribution is, very is tough. tough. So taking taking your FBI background in both cyber but as an attorney, mm-hmm. if if somebody does that in a U.S. hospital, we'll stay in America for a second, and and people die, I mean, that's a criminal offense beyond cyber. Now you're dealing with somebody's life, right? Well, so you're dealing with a felony murder type instance right. where. You kill somebody in the creation of a felony. Almost, I think every state in the country has a felony murder law. Plus, there's yeah. numerous federal statutes that, that that deal with that. But the biggest problem, I think, is I don't believe 
and I could be wrong because I can't, I'm not the bad guy instituting the attack. I can tell you in the German attack, the German threat actors were incredibly apologetic and tried very hard to get the network back online after they realized they shut the hospital down. But they did kill a patient, and they're going to have to pay for that. Uh, there was a recent wow. disruption where attack against American hospitals. I, I could not tell you the justification or the reasoning behind that attack other than they're generally financial in nature. But there are certain disruption where attacks, when you use stuff like wipers and bricking capabilities, especially wipers, wipers are designed to destroy data. They wipe data. There's no unencryption or decryption of data where you can get your system back online. If, if they wipe your data, your data is lost. You know what I'm saying? So there are some disruption where attacks that are malicious in intent. And the question is, are those what we call what we called in the FBI script kiddies who go up to the websites, download scripts and run them, have no idea what they're doing. Probably 95 percent of your threat actors out there are script kiddies. They're just stupid kids that don't know what they're okay. doing, but they just go up to websites. They find the they're able to do a scan, a port scan against a network, figure out what your operating system is. And then they run it. You know, then they run an attack. Then there's also the more sophisticated type attackers who are in it for the money. And those are, that's mostly, I apologize, my dog, that's mostly ransomware attacks. And uh, those folks are in it for the money. They decrypt, they encrypt data, and they get paid to decrypt data. But then you also have the really bad folks or possible foreign nation states, you know, that have attacked us constantly. And those folks are malicious. And I think some of their attacks right. are, are, are threats in general. Well, and you said and that you, you've seen more, sorry. Ahead, you said Jared. you've seen more attacks towards um, energy and healthcare recently from disruption where. Well, there, recently there's been, is? I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, that's a great question. Uh, right now, there's a huge disruption or attack being aimed at the American energy industry. And that's because they're, quite frankly, they're an easy target. When, when the American energy grid was put together in the 50s and the 60s, they didn't put it together with cyber attacks in mind. They put it together with physical attacks in mind, so they put up fences, they have guards, they do the things they need to do to stop people from penetrating penetrating these areas. But what they haven't done is they're not prepared. Like, if you remember the old days of SCADA attacks, SCADA mm -hmm. attacks were su supremely successful early on because there was no cybersecurity controls put in place. It took years for the for the port industries and a lot of those industries to put the cyber defense controls in place to help defeat SCADA attacks. The American energy industry is supremely vulnerable to disruption or attacks right now. I wrote a blog on that, which if you go to the Figure Drinker blog website, you can read about that. But the, right now, I think the top four victims of disruption or attacks are going to be municipalities because they have poor cybersecurity defenses, schools, uh, hospitals and in the American energy industry. Well, and I, I would say we spend a lot of time on nation state attacks, but these same type of techniques, these same type of t attacks could, could uh, be the prelude to armed conflict. Also, if a nation state wants to take another nation state down or, or look at capabilities, I mean, you run a wiper and those systems are gone to, to your point, Jason. Absolutely. The biggest challenge when we were in the FBI and an equal challenge, it's a harder challenge on the private side when you don't have access to the tools that the FBI had. But the biggest question we have is, are these individual privatized threat actors trying to make money or just have a bone to pick with somebody or are there nation states? Because there are a lot yeah. of nation state threat actors out there. Like I worked on the, the Sony attack, which, which worked out of the L.A. office. 
And I'm not telling you anything that's confidential anymore, but everybody's pretty confident that was the North Koreans. You know what I'm saying? Correct. And and uh, <clears throat> those type of attacks are hard. Is it North Korea? Is it China? Is it Iran? Is it even some of our allies? You know, you can't, you don't always know who the nation threat actor is. And there's a lot of diplomacy and politics to get involved with that, which is way above my pay grade. I can promise you that. Yeah, I spent a lot of time. I worked with a group uh, at a prior employer where we, we did advanced threat analysis, essentially. And attribution was the, you know, I, I drove them to get to attribution. And one day, uh, one of them, one of the senior researchers sat me down and said, look, let's talk about basic attribution. Let me tell you the type of things that I can tell you with confidence. And let me tell you about the type of things that we'll probably never be able to 100% guarantee. And you know, so we, that, that attribution is so tough. You can't just get fingerprints and trace them back and say, it was Carolyn Ford. You know, the FBI had an expression as we always catch the dumb ones. And that's true. Right. We, use, we always catch dumb criminals. The problem is there's some smart criminals out there. And that's really a challenge because it's, it's, it's like bank fraud or mail fraud. If you rob a bank, but you don't steal so much money that we have to react, it sometimes doesn't rate to the level where we have the resources to put into it from an FBI standpoint. If you don't, if you steal some money, but not enough, then we call it a state crime. We ask the locals to investigate. It's like everything else. How serious is the attack? Like I worked on 9-11 and I, you know, I used to joke around a lot. If you blow up a building, the FBI will catch you because at that point we no longer have a budget. We no longer have any kind of controls from a financial standpoint. We used to turn what I used to call the eye of mortar on you. If we're actually able to get that eye of mortar turned upon you, we will catch you. The question is, is the attack serious enough that it warrants moving the eye of mortar from a law enforcement perspective? From a private sector perspective, it's actually harder because although we work in partnership with law enforcement a lot of times, law enforcement is limited in what they can tell and share with us because it's an ongoing criminal investigation as well. And I think, uh, Eric, your point about attribution is just so, so spot on. But from a private sector standpoint, our job, while attribution is important, we have to leave a lot of attribution to law enforcement. We have to focus on containment, retention, data recovery, you know, notification, following the laws that are necessary. If we have a HIPAA violation, if we have PII information stolen, we have timelines we have to deal with. Those are those are big challenges from a legal standpoint that we have to work with. And obviously working with our cyber partners, our forensic partners is also a big part of that as well. What are you seeing the energy and healthcare and, and basically this is critical infrastructure, right? In fact, I, I, I want to, okay, two parts of this question is OT that network. Is that what I would call critical infrastructure? Those networks. OT are, meaning well, operational guess, technology. Yes. That, I guess I'll, a, yeah. Okay. That's a okay, perfect so, analogy. It, it's literally shutting down the infrastructure, turning off turning off elevators, shutting down operating rooms, turning off electrical grids. It isn't just encrypting data and asking for a ransom. It's literally physically shutting down a system. That's why it's called an operational technology. It's it's op, the operation of the business. The, there's two types of cyber defense. There's operational defense and there's there's infrastructure uh, information technology defense. There's a traditional type of cyber defense that we all think about. There's also what mm -hmm. I call social awareness training, which is the training that's super lacking in our society from a computer security standpoint. We don't train people well enough, and this is something we worked on hard in the FBI, but I can tell you we don't do it in the private sector at all. 
where we train people on how to prevent and recognize fishing attacks, whaling attacks, spear phishing attacks, uh, vishing attacks, you know, SIMS card swapping attacks. There are dozens of different types of social engineering attacks that become successful because employees are the weakest link in any chain. A network is only as strong as its weakest link. We, the FBI used to have an expression, the only safe network is a network with no users. And, and the problem is as long as you have users on a network, there's going to be, there's going to be a weakness to it. And when we talk about operational technology, you're 100% correct when we talk about the physical infrastructure. But that's only one part of defense. If you look at my writing on, on disruptionware, and I'll be doing a CLE webinar in, uh, at the end of March where I'll be talking about this as well. But I talk a lot about social awareness training and defense because if businesses don't, private sector businesses especially, the government's its own set of problems. But for the private sector side, if we don't, recognize and identify to people, please don't click on this link. Because you can have the greatest spy, uh, firewall in the world and the cyber, you can have the Maginot line of cybersecurity, but look what happened in World War II. It didn't work. It wasn't super effective. Right, because the Germans just went around it, which is the same thing as yeah. a phishing attack. If, if somebody clicks on the phishing attack, they're now behind the firewall. And, is that and, the main way make, the disruptions getting in, the disruption well, getting in are through these that, social engineered attacks? Yeah, absolutely. I, I truly believe that, in my opinion. I think 50% of all cyber attacks come from phishing attacks. And the one thing I... I, th- I, I actually, I think I think most studies I say it it's higher. quite a bit higher. It, it, I was yeah, making sure. I, I want to say it's north right. of 70, 70, 80% I, last I heard. I thought it was up in the 80s, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and I'll tell you, another problem is, and this is a big problem we had in the FBI as well, is you can have all the security in the world, but 80% of cyber attacks have an inside presence. There's insider threats. And I've written a lot about insider threats as well. You can do all the security you want, but if you've got somebody on the inside and you don't have those defenses, because companies and businesses spend so much time and money defending themselves from external attacks, but almost no attack, there's nothing to prevent them from internal attacks. You know, if you want a good war story, this is one of my, my favorite cases when I was in the Bureau, is we had a cyber threat actor who went to a business and sprinkled USB thumb drives around their parking lot filled with malware. Now, most humans are good people. And if you find a thumb drive on the ground in your parking lot, you say to yourself, one of my coworkers has dropped their thumb drive. I should return it. So what do you think these people did? They took the thumb drive, they put it into the computer system behind the firewall, the malware was instigated, and now the malware is populated behind the firewall and the cyber threat is gone. Now, that was an insider attack, although it was inadvertent, but it's, it still right. worked like an insider attack. So I want to stop there for a commercial announcement for one second. If you find a USB drive in the parking lot, (laughs) if if you happen to be going to work these days into the parking lot as opposed to working from home, take the heel of your shoe or boot, unless you're wearing high heels, smash it immediately, and then be a good citizen of the earth. Pick it up, dispose of it properly, recycle it, whatever you need to do, but do not allow that to be used again. That is a clear sign that there's a problem. Yes. Okay, back to the regularly scheduled podcast, Carolyn. Well, so where my mind's going when you're talking about these OT attacks with disruptionware is you're talking, this is kinetic <coughs> warfare through cyber, right? Can be. It, yes. No, I mean, it can it, be. I mean, if it's launched by a nation state actor, it's an act of war. There's, there's no question so, about it, but you're right. the politics of it is a whole other matter, you know, and that's something way above our pay grade. But yes, you're 100% right. 
The problem is it goes back to attribution. We don't always know if it's a nation state actor or we don't know if it's a cyber threat actor. They're both out there. They're both using disruptionware effectively. And in my humble opinion, it's just going to get worse and worse. This is not this is not something that's going away. Ransomware attacks have gone up exponentially over the last couple of years. And they are the number one disruptionware attack. They do work. They work and they're cheap. So, Carolyn, we've been talking about Sunburst a lot on the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. I- imagine that an adversary got in. We were just talking about insider threats. They created usernames. They created accounts. They got through the multi-factor authentication, right? The zero trust types of security mechanisms. But imagine instead of just exfiltrating data, if they just wipe systems or they set all systems to wipe or they on stay Mar- in March there. 13th. Exactly. Stay in there just so they can control the systems, so they can mess with the systems. These kinetic. Well, exactly. We saw you know, Eric, that. Eric, that's a yeah. great point. That's called a logic bomb. And those are very popular attacks, especially yeah. from insider threat attacks. One of my first cases as an FBI agent was an was a, was a employee in a company who set a logic bomb in the company payroll system. So if his social security number didn't turn up in the payroll every two weeks, he launched the malware internally. And the one day he was fired because he knew he was going to get fired. And fortunately, we were able to find the logic bomb before it launched. But what you're saying is, and this was in 1998, and now we're in 2021, and, but the same, the same game plan still works. Well, exactly. And, and, and yeah. I would argue, I was talking to somebody uh, last week, I won't name them, but you know, when we, when we look at the insider threat, we were, we were, we were looking at sunburst, we were talking about it, but who needs to pay a U.S. citizen $100,000 to exfiltrate data or do something these days when you can just come in from a cyber perspective? You know, you can just come right in on, on solar winds or some other infiltration mechanism, and then you can move laterally. You almost don't even have to pay people anymore and, and increase that exposure and risk. That's expensive in, in time and money and everything else. The new insider threat, in my opinion, is the adversary who gets in, creates user accounts, gets them validated. Yeah. Yeah. And which is what, start, so, and what, then what Sunburst operating. did. That's yeah. exactly what happened. Fortunately, we, yeah. I don't think we have any reports of, of damage internally yet. But when you look at the, the agencies, agriculture, commerce, energy, HHS, DHS, I mean, across the board, the agencies that were impacted were penetrated- Imagine if somebody ran a wiper, to your point, Jason, and just started wiping systems across the board in those agencies. What would we do? Well, think about it from a business standpoint. If, if you're in a competitive business area and you want to destroy your competition, what better than a disruption where attack to do that? Either shut down their operational technology networks or worse, run a right. wiper, run a, you know, run a bricking capability type tool. And you can literally put those people out of business if, if they don't have their backups properly secured. And a lot of companies don't. A lot of companies yeah, still make the, yeah. the criminal mistake of leaving their backup systems accessible to these type of attacks. And then you could be out of business for weeks or months and it would destroy your business. So well, I, I think we saw this. something similar with Saudi Aramco back a couple of years ago where they had to build, rebuild their entire IT infrastructure, all new systems, everything. Yeah. I remember that attack. Yeah. It yeah was so, deadly. so since, since time's beaten us, you've already told us the training is critical. Backing up your systems. What other recommendations would you give well, agencies? If you're going to do a backup, try and do a cloud backup that has no connectivity to your IT or your OT networks. Because at the end of the day, if they're somehow connected, you can lose everything. Uh, we had a client who suffered a ransomware attack, but was able to get their business back up in two days because they had an excellent 
backup system that was a cloud-based backup system. Now, there were still other issues to deal with, and it wasn't quite as simple as, okay, now we're done. But from a flip side, at least from a business continuity standpoint, they were able to keep the business running. They were able to restore right. their entire network over a weekend. Obviously, I can't stress the backup system enough and to make sure, like, I can't tell you how many people make backup tapes and then store them in their server room. And then if there's a fire, guess what happens to your backup tape? Or if there's a theft, guess what happens to your backup tapes? You don't store your backup tapes or your backup programs where you store your servers. You keep that separate or there's no point to doing it at all. Uh, multiple so, copies, multiple locations. And, yeah. And, and and Jason, if I, if I can interrupt for one second, the other thing we've talked about in the past, Caroline, is practice restoration. Yes. Practice. Uh, because yeah. you could be yeah. backing up for years. And if, if it's a bad backup job or it's missing mm -hmm. something and, and you don't actually try to recover, when you go and try to recover, guess what? You're probably going to have a bad day. Absolutely. Because yeah. people don't realize tape drives are very picky sometimes. If you, if you upgrade your tape drives and you try and restore old tapes from a different tape drive, that doesn't always work. If you can afford it, I would go cloud-based backups as much as possible. That is by far the most secure and the safest way to back up your networks. Now, tape is Jurassic, for lack of a better term. <clears throat> <laughs> All right. So now we're to the fun part of the podcast. I'm going to give you a few rapid-fire questions, sure. Jason. So you just name that too. The first thing. Name that, that too. Exactly. Exactly. Close. All right. Close. What are you reading right now? I've been reading a lot. Solar Winds is 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 the reading material of the day. That you know, if you if based on what I've read, because I have no inside information any longer, because I'm no longer with the government, but it, it appears to be a, a a nation state attack from the Russians. Cozy Bear, a Russian intelligence mm -hmm. unit, appears to have. But I don't know that for an absolute fact. I'm just telling you what I've read. Uh, the Solar Winds attack was a major wake-up call to the cybersecurity gurus of our of, of our country from a technical standpoint because they were able to do I hope things. So. I hope so too because they were able to do I things so. that a lot of folks do. They actually were allegedly able to ex exfiltrate and infiltrate the Microsoft network, corrupt DLL files. Uh, right now, from a stand from a from a reading standpoint, I would read up as much on Solar Winds as I can because that's going to become a treatise on cybersecurity in terms right. of what went right and what went wrong. Well, and honestly, I enjoy, I follow your firm on LinkedIn. You guys put out a lot of really good blogs. I try. We try. They, they're great. So, okay, next question. Do you have a cybersecurity must-read book or follow somebody in cybersecurity podcast other than this one? Well, first of all, if I can pimp my own podcast, uh, I, I host the Fagery Drinker Law and Technology podcast that is posted on our websites where I do, uh, we talk about law and technology issues as well. Uh, Krebs is the guru on computer security and uh, yeah. you, you can always, the Krebs podcast and a lot of his news, newsletter yeah. stuff, he's he's a guru. I, I highly recommend him. Uh, you know, I have a problem in the FBI, we were under strict rules never to endorse, so I try hard not to endorse people because you know one one person's trash is another person's treasure, and I don't want to, you know, send people the wrong way. But you know, you, any cybersecurity podcast that's reputable is going to be a good podcast to listen to. You guys do a great job. I think we do a great job. Uh, Krebs does a great job. There are a lot of great cybersecurity. Uh, I enjoy podcasts a little more than perhaps reading blogs and articles sometimes because I can do, download podcasts to my phone and just listen to them while I take a walk or when I'm driving so I can maximize the value of my time a little bit more. 
but you have to stay up on cybersecurity. <laughs> I apologize. Sorry about that. Uh, cybersecurity is never ending. It, it, it's, it's always in motion. It's always in flux. It, it's, it's like, like when I did computer forensics for over 20 years, we were always, a, you know, jack of all trades, prince of none, because all we do is study and train and learn, but you're always chasing technology. You know, and one mm-hmm. of the big problems the government has is the government chases technology worse than everybody. When a cyber criminal wants to buy a new computer, they steal a credit card and buy a computer. When we wanted to buy a new computer, it took us six weeks of inventory, logistics, and approvals to get that computer already six to eight weeks behind before we even get started. So I would really tell you, we had a rule in the government that 20 to 25% of our time was just training. And if you can afford that in the private sector with your IT gurus, your cyber gurus, they need to spend 20, 20, 20 to 25% of their time studying cybercrime. Because if you don't, like disruptionware, a lot of people don't even know what disruptionware is, so they don't even recognize the attack when they see it. I honestly yeah, I hadn't heard it. that term. I hadn't heard yeah. that term. I mean, you, I, I knew ransomware, but disruptionware is a new term that I was introduced well, to. Well, people don't realize that ransomware is a tool in the disruptionware toolkit. Right. I mean, ransomware, yeah. while people think of it as a standalone attack, it is and it isn't. It is truly part of a disruptionware attack. And there are multiple tools in the disruptionware toolkit. And it's all a matter of who's using them and what the purpose is. And if they're in, the, in it for the money or if they're just plain pissed off. All right. So what have you watched lately, binge watched, watched lately on TV, movie, whatever, that you've just loved? The Mandalorian. Oh, I'm sorry. That was yes. There's Grogu right there. I'm a Mandalorian. I love Star Wars. After trying to survive the disaster that was Jar Jar Binks, I now have Grogu. And so I, I'm, I'm at peace with the world again. But I, I bought Disney Excellent. Plus and my wife and I have been binge watching uh, The Mandalorian. I'm with this you. could turn into I'm a Star Wars part, podcast with the two of you. Car- Carolyn, what's your dog's name? Han Solo. Yeah. And you know what my dog's name is? Chewbacca. <gasps> I told yes, you. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. Oh my gosh. Listeners, what best, did I say? I warned you. Best day of the month. That's All the right. next podcast right there. <laughs> That's right. All right. Um, tell me, what do you have a guilty pleasure other than Star Wars? Video it, games. It can be Star Wars. Video really? Games. What's your favorite? Uh, I am a Skyrim Oblivion fan. I, I'm a, I love third-party okay. role-playing games. I'm not a big first-person shooter person. I've done that for, for a while, but I love role-playing games. I'm a, I'm a big Dungeons & Dragons player. i played Dungeons & Dragons since I was about 10 years old. Uh, but I love uh, video games. I still play. I have a play, PlayStation 4. Whatever PlayStation my son has, I have to have one better, just to prove to him that <laughs> there is a value to having a good job, is that I can I afford better five, stuff than him. I thought the 5 was coming out. It Did is. The 5 is out, and I'm going to be yeah, buying that very yeah, soon. If, if you can't okay, get okay. it right now. Yeah, I yeah. can't believe so, people are still playing D&D. Oh, people still play D&D. I still have a D&D I'm club. I'm so out of touch. D&D is still <laughs> as popular as ever. Okay. All right. So if you had your magic wand that you could wave in the cybersecurity world and you could just change one thing, what would it be? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I got to be honest. This is going to sound a little weird. I believe I would want to do more to help businesses train and prepare employees to deal with, with social awareness type training to prevent cyber attacks. I do truly believe that the biggest mistake we're making from a cybersecurity standpoint is we spend too much time putting up firewalls and not enough time teaching people how to avoid phishing attacks, whaling attacks, business email compromise attacks. I mean, 
employees just have no idea what they're doing. And that was a that was a problem we had in the government as well. We, we would spend all our time. And the, the biggest problem, you know, and that brings up a great point. I don't want to kill the time, but we are way too reactive in the government and even in the private sector. One of the things we tried to do with the regional computer forensics labs, with the cyber task force I helped create, I helped create three major task force, is try and become more proactive. If I had a wave my magic wand, I would want us to become more proactive in cybersecurity and less reactive. Action And we do that be- through training. Right. But people have to remember when you deal with a gunfight, action always beats reaction. Whoever, you know, that's why we train constantly when we train in, in terms of, of, of self-defense from a from, a, you know, guns and shooting and all that action versus reaction. Cybersecurity is no different. We have to be proactive, not reactive. If we're reactive, we'll always lose. You cannot win. Yeah, we've win been reactive lose. from the beginning. So, and we still are. Yeah, and until yeah. we change that, we're yeah. always going to be playing catch up. I love it. OK, last question. What do you think the biggest cybersecurity impact has been in the last 12 months? Solar winds. I think solar yeah. winds is going to redefine cybersecurity for the next generation. It's going to be a case study. You're going to see books, magazines, articles, uh, webinars, continuing legal educations. I've already written a, a, an article on solar winds uh, because it, it? It, it's, it's, it's so important to, as a learning tool as to what went wrong and what not to do in the future. I truly hope that people take solar winds as seriously as they need to, or, I mean, on the flip side, it keeps me gainfully employed, but ultimately as a, as a resident of planet earth, you know, I, I want my children to grow up in a world where they don't have to worry about constant cyber security attacks and their credit cards being stolen and this being done. It's, it's a tough way to live and it's only going to get worse. that. So yeah. I have a quick follow-up. Do you feel that the practitioners you've speak you, you've spoken with see it as as such a significant monumental event as it is? Not yet, but they will. That's what I'm saying. I'm, not yet. I'm not seeing people acknowledge like Microsoft's source code was accessed. Absolutely, that people don't understand uh, the month, implications they t- of they, that. They tell us exactly, and they tell us that a month after they said, "Hey, we didn't have any problems." That's the oper- operating system of the Earth. You like, couldn't, how do you, Eric, you couldn't be more correct. You, the problem is it goes back to disruption where disruption where has been out there well over a year. I said first identified it and I started writing about it. It's yeah. been over a year by now. And people still don't know what disruption where attacks are. People don't understand what solar winds is about. People don't understand the threats we live in, not just from threat actors, but from foreign nation states. You know what I'm saying? They have a real vested interest in destroying our economy. And the way to do that is no longer shooting missiles, it's to destroy infrastructure. It's destroy information technology, operational technology. If you can attack Microsoft and change their DLLs, you, you've got some stuff to worry about. You know what I'm saying? Because like you said, Eric, that's the operating system of the earth. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. that these are really fantastic questions and I hope people take these thoughts to heart. You know what I'm Windows, Azure, hopefully the only source code they accessed was uh, some Windows codec from 1998. Yeah, I, 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 I don't I, think I, that's the case. I think in the end, we're going to survive solar winds. And hopefully, the question is, are we going to learn from it? You know what I'm saying? Because solar winds could have been a lot worse than it was. I think, you know, there was some damage done, but that will be fixed. The question is not so much what's the damage and how much does it cost, but do we learn from it so we can prevent it from happening again? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jason. My pleasure. A lot of good, I enjoyed it. A lot of good material today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So yeah. that was right, Chewbacca guess. barking? 
Uh, no, I actually have a German Shepherd named uh, Autumn Wind because I'm a big Raider fan, football fan, so my dog. But my, <laughs> but my okay. small dog, I have a Parson Terrier who looks exactly like Chewbacca. So I named her, I named him Chewbacca. And nice. his, his name's Chewbacca. So uh, Star Wars is coming back slowly. All right, listeners, share this episode, hit that like button, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you very much. Have a great week. I really appreciate Thank the you. time. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store 